Hey, I'm Jack. I'm Bethany Northeast lead pastor. It is so great to see you guys. And I know we did this earlier, but let's do it again. He is risen. risen Yeah, thank you. Um, If we were in a a more liturgical setting, um, I would have you stand. So I'm going to have you stand. So I come out of a Presbyterian background. So we're going to read the gospel together. So go ahead and stand. And this is the gospel reading from Mark chapter 16, starting in verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they could go and anoint Jesus' dead body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they came to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who's going to roll the stone away from the entrance for us? When they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, and it was a very large stone. Going to the tomb, they saw a young man in a white robe seated on the right side, and they were startled. But he said to them, don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, here's the place where they laid him. Go tell his disciples, especially Peter, that he's going ahead of you into Galilee. You'll see him there just as he told you. Overcome with terror and dread, they fled from the tomb, and they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. This is God's word to us, the people of God. You can be seated. Well, about one year ago, the scholar and theologian N.T. Wright wrote an article in Time magazine where he asked this question. He said, what is the point of celebrating Easter during a pandemic? And he said this in the article, for most, Easter this year will seem like a giant mismatch because what the world needs now is hope at ground level, hope with boots on, and most see Easter as an escapist fantasy holding out a mirage-like hope of heaven hereafter. Most see Easter as an escapist fantasy holding out a mirage-like hope of heaven hereafter. That was written in April of 2021, and not a lot has changed since, has it? as we deal now with not just new variants, but also a war in Ukraine that is terrifying and escalating on the daily, historically unparalleled refugee crisis as a consequence, political and economic turmoil. I mean, I just go on and on and on about the world we're living in and how it feels. So what's the point of celebrating Easter in a time like this? Like, why are you here today? And I'm not asking you to answer the question, Somebody might have brought you. It might just be part of your tradition. You might really have a deep conviction about this day. In the article, Wright actually goes on to offer a somewhat um, lighthearted illustration of this mismatch. He shared a recent episode of The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. At the time, Colbert was filming from home, so he's in his home studio. And his host that day, his co-host that day, was his wife, Evie. And he asked Evie in this very uh, authentic and kind of startling moment, uh, they're practicing Catholics, and they've been very open about that. He said... Evie, what's your favorite part about Easter? And she looked surprised, and she looked back at him and said, you mean uh, apart from Christ is risen and all that stuff? And and Colbert said, obviously, obviously, and then we have eternal life, and on and on and on. But what's your favorite part about Easter? (laughs) The candy, yeah. And I think what that illustrates is even if we identify, I don't know why you're here today, why'd you come, as deeply committed followers of Christ— We need boots on the ground hope and talk of resurrection and eternal life and he has risen and all that, especially in the midst of times like we're living now. This message of Easter uh, can feel like a mismatch. 
to use uh, N.T. Wright's words again, it can feel like a vague hope that doesn't really address the real issues. A vague hope that doesn't really address the real issues. And so it's kind of through that lens that I want to explore Easter text this morning, this text from Mark 16 that we just looked at, just the first eight verses. If you know Mark's gospel, there's um, a section that's after that that goes on and on. Those, many scholars suggest, were added later, and we're going to get to that in a moment, but we're just going to look at these first eight. And as we do, uh, and by the way, I know kids are in the service, so I'm not going to go on for a long, long time. We have busy bags. Hopefully you got those. There's a train table over here for coloring. We have an area out here in the entrance area that you could go out to, too. And that's just not for kids, just for kids. But if you're feeling squirmish, squeamish, like you need to reset, go to any of those spaces for any age, okay? What I'd like to do with you is just look at one, one key reality from this text, one reality. And that, t- that reality is that resurrection is a solid, definite, and practical reality for our everyday lives. Resurrection is a solid, definite, and practical reality for our everyday lives, okay? Esau Macaulay, who's a theologian and scholar, he uh, teaches at New, uh, New Testament at Wheaton College. He wrote an article in, in the New York Times this week, um, an op-ed article. He's written a book called Reading While Black, African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope. And his op-ed he wrote this week, this past Friday, in fact, I'd encourage you to go read it. It's really really good. And he said this, it's common, even in Christian circles, to think of the afterlife as a disembodied bliss in a paradise filled with naked baby angels tickling the strings of harps as our souls bounce from cloud to cloud. But Christianity has never, ever taught a disembodied future in heaven. Our beliefs are far more radical. We believe that one day the entire creative world will be transformed to become what God always intended it to be, free from pain, death, and sorrow, It'll be an earth that still contains some of the things of this life, food, art, music, lakes, mountains, beaches, culture. There'll be hip-hop, he says, spiritual, soul music, and grits with cheese, salt, and pepper, no sugar. Indeed, Christians believe that our bodies will be resurrected from the dead to live in this transformed earth. Like the earth itself, these bodies will be transfigured or perfected, he said, but they will still be our bodies. They'll still be our bodies. And I, I just love that because of how it speaks to this reality of resurrection being solid, definite, and practical. It's solid, definite, and practical. It's not something we just talk about once a year or rehearse once a year in a story from the end of the Gospels. It's something that lives every day in our lives. To be sure, we, we usually orient around the spiritual reality of resurrection, don't we? Our religious artwork is filled with a sort of disembodied Jesus, These images of Jesus hovering over people, glowing like an otherworldly being, just victorious over the powers of death and darkness. I mean, granted, a lot of these images here are from a certain period in time and a certain cultural expression, so I'll give you that. But hopefully the point's taken nonetheless in the sense that Mark doesn't have any of that in his account. No Jesus hovering over the people, disembodied from earth. Indeed, what we see and what we're shown in this text from Mark's, in the very first verse, we learn that Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, who's Jesus' brother, that's his mother, and Salome are on their way to the tomb so they can anoint Jesus' dead body. I'll say it again. They're there to anoint a dead body. And I think that's a subtle but significant detail that we need to lift out in this text. Jesus died. This is not a story of death in the abstract or theoretical. I know death is not fun to talk about, especially with all ages in the room. This is a story of a man who lived some 2,000 years ago, 
walked the earth 2,000, walked the earth 2,000 years ago, just as you and I walked the earth this morning. He drank and ate certain foods. He spoke to certain people in a certain language, or languages, so I've heard. He's, he had relationships. He had real flesh and blood family with all the warts and wounds. Y'all are with your family today. It ain't perfect, right? Can I get an amen? He felt joy, sorrow, hope, and pain, and he died. Jesus really died. And that's important to recognize on Easter, this great day of celebration and great day of life, you know, the pinnacle of life, because the reality is Easter is a consequence of death. Easter resurrection does not happen without the death of Jesus. You know, the women have come to the tomb to anoint Jesus' dead body. They haven't come expecting a resurrection. That's not on their radar. This scene is filled with mourning and grief and loss, not hope. And that's important as well, because as we skip down now to verse 6 of verse, uh, chapter 16 of Mark, the women have this really startling encounter with an angel. And the angel says, you're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, the dead body of Jesus. He's not here. He's been raised. I love that. I love that for the brevity and simplicity of it. Look, he isn't here. Uh, the Episcopal priest and theologian Fleming Rutledge talks about this reality of Jesus' bodily resurrection and its implications for our lives. She wrote this, that all the Gospels of the, res- uh, of the accounts of the resurrection convey a similar sense of something completely unlooked for that happened, something that's without precedent, something that stuns and astonishes with its inexplicable power. And that's something as it's revealed in its various stages is the resurrection of Jesus to a bodily existence. She goes on to say that the risen Lord was not a disembodied spirit. He was a real body with whom the disciples had a continuing face-to-face relationship. They ate with him. They talked with him. They walked with him. They might have even fought with him a little bit about what they're going to do next. And in such intimate human encounters with all that convey of forgiveness, repentance, restitution, reconciliation, all the things that had to happen, cannot take place without bodily existence. And I think if anybody's learned that, <laughs> we have over the past couple of years, like as we zoomed our way into sort of disembodied existence, I think one of the lessons of 2020 and 2021 is you cannot, you cannot, and I hope there's no investors in Zoom here, but you cannot replicate the intimacy and the vulnerability necessary for relationships over Zoom. Can I, can I get another Amen. I mean, I fear the day when we replace intimacy and vulnerability with virtual reality. And maybe we're already there. And uh, I'm late to the party. My kids know this. We're never, never, and I'm not knocking on wood, going to get an Oculus. But something has unsettled me in the prospect of this time we're in. Because what you see in Easter in the resurrection story is that we as people are, who are made in the image of an incarnate God, we, he, he lived and he died and he rose from the dead. We need face-to-face relationships, encounters with one another in order to experience the life for which God has made us. We need it. It's not just an add-on. Church and this kind of gathering is not just an add-on to an already full life. This is the core of what it means to follow Christ, to be in community, which is perhaps another way to say that to be a Christian and live out the resurrection consists not of trying to be as good as you can, you know, try as hard as you can to be as good as you can so you can get to heaven someday. No show of hands here, but how many have been raised to think that way about your faith? Just be as good as you can. 
Follow the rules. Don't smoke. Don't drink. Don't dance. Don't listen to music with the explicit lyrics in it. You know, just go down the line. Go to church. Serve. Give. And maybe, maybe someday, I might get to heaven. That's not the point of Christianity. That's not what it means to follow Christ. The point of Christianity based on the resurrection text is that we learn to live in the new world created by Easter. There's a new world that's been created by Easter and we're being invited to learn how to live in it. And I don't think it's going to be news to any of you that Jesus enters this new world created by Easter. His resurrected body bears the scars of his crucifixion. You all know that. They're not church. Jesus has a, a scarred body. But you ever thought about why? Like what that's about? Jesus, I mean, what does the resurrection have to do with the scars? I mean, he can rise from the dead. He could take care of the scars, right? Like he's healed a bunch of people. Could you just take one for yourself right now? Like just clean it up, right? What's up with a scarred risen body? And many of us have scars, right, in our lives, inside, outside. What's up with the scars? Well, Andy Crouch, who writes about the intersection of Christianity and culture, he suggested if a scar is a healed wound, a wound that the body has marvelously managed to rescue and restore, then in some way Christ's entire bodily form, having suffered the ultimate injury of death, but having been rescued and restored, is that of a scar. Christ's entire bodily form is that of a scar. What a remarkable insight, right? The entire bodily form of Christ is a scar. One walking, living, breathing scar. Especially as you think about your life now, your visible and invisible scars, which as Crouch says, can, Crouch says can often be deep sources of shame and regret, right? You all have scars. It's a failure. It's a relationship that's broken right now. You don't see the way forward. Uh, it's a past or present struggle, probably both. It's a deep place of wounding. Maybe it's a trauma from the, your past, an abuse. People are scars. We are walking, living, breathing scars. And yet, and, and Crouch says this, perhaps he, our scars are the truest claims that we have on the full form of our resurrected bodies, if we'll just learn to embrace them. They are the truest clues that we have of the full form of our resurrected bodies. They help us identify with Jesus Christ, the living God who died and then rose from the grave. They invite us to not conceal suffering, but to reveal it. We're called by this story to reveal our suffering to, toward a deeper honoring and holding of the reality of suffering in new and transformed ways. This is not just a license to sort of just I cry from the stage a lot, if you all know me, if you've been here a while. It's not a license to do that, although I'm sorry I do it. Um, it just happens sometimes. You're in the splash zone, but, um, which has different meanings here. But it is, a, it is an invitation, as Henry Now once put it, to be wounded healers. To, to bear the wounds of our lives, to bear the wounds of Jesus in our lives, and offer healing out of those wounds. And so the question, as I kind of wrap up here, is then how? Like, how would that look to be wounded healers, to be living scars? Um, how are we called to live in a world like that, this world filled with promise and hope and life and life to the full? And he has risen, he has risen indeed, and yet also so, so, so much death. Death on every page of the news today. What's it going to look like? 
Well, this is why I love the ending of Mark's gospel, the shorter ending. Uh, I, I said earlier that there's a longer and a shorter ending, and in your English Bibles, if you had one, you're going to see that this chapter ha- usually has a heading that says the short ending of Mark and the longer endings of Mark, or the original and the later endings. And what that's about is this debate over the history or the historicity of those endings, like who wrote them, when were they added, why were they added, what, what authority did that person who added them have? I mean, like you can see somebody, uh, this is an actual page from the Gospel of Mark, and somebody like tried to erase out <laughs> Like, and I think that that Greek text might say below it, stop messing with the text, you wicked scribe. So, um, and that might be interesting to spend a few minutes on unpacking the debate, or maybe not, depending on who you are. What I will say is that what the scholars agree on is that the shorter ending of Mark is the original ending of Mark. Those first eight verses I read, and they fled in terror and amazement at what they'd seen and heard. That's the original ending. The very abrupt ending, you know, with the women leaving, you know, they, they approach the term in verse three, in verse three, they ask, who's going to roll that stone away? It's a really big stone. They look up, they see it's been done in verse four, they go into the tomb in verse five, they encounter an angel in verse six, they hear he's risen, and then the result is they abruptly flee the tomb because they were overcome with terror. The word there is trauma in Greek, that's where we get our word trauma. They were traumatized, their lids are flipped. And what's that about, ending a story that way? Don't, you don't end stories that way. Not even Hollywood movie uh, directors end stories that way. Like, that's not how you do it. You, you have a happy ending, right? You always do. So why would Mark want to end his story that way? Well, Harry O'Meyer, who's a professor of New Testament and early Christian studies at Vancouver School of Theology just up north, he says that their question, while understandable, since we all know what it is to come to a graveside in grief and broken hope, it's not a bad question to ask who's going to roll the stone away and to bear myrrh to the body of Jesus, to grieve with a loved one who's died, to come alongside somebody who's suffering. And it's not bad to do that. I'm not saying we ought not grieve when we're suffering. But what he says is it's not the right question in the moment. See, the attentive reader of Mark's gospel will remember that Jesus predicted his death in resurrection three times, once plainly that he'll die and rise again. Mark 8, Mark 9, and Mark 10. And these predictions, O'Meyer says, are lifelines, or they're clues. They're, they're sort of signals, invitations to the next chapter of the story. So he goes on to say the better question might be, how are we going to live with resurrection? How are you going to live with resurrection? The resurrection's happened. It's a reality. The scarred body of Jesus is walking around the earth today. How are you going to live with it? How are you going to deal with that? Do you hear what he's saying there? That eventually, you know, they share their story. It's obvious. The next verses were added. Verse 9 happens. Verse 12 happens. Verse 15 happens. This beautiful commissioning by Jesus where he says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. That is my favorite of all the great commissionings in all the gospels. You know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Acts, um, John. I love that one, preaching creation. I just get this image of St. Francis preaching to Bambi, you know, like, I don't know why, but I just like it, you know, so I love the wilderness, and that one appeals to me, <laughs> rabbit trail, sorry, um, but it's interesting that it's Mark's abrupt short ending that invites us to participate here in the resurrection in a way that that commissioning doesn't. Do you understand that? Like, it's great to be commissioned by God, go and preach the good news to all 
make disciples, baptize, we're going to baptize. But we, it's great to hear all that and get, you know, kind of our marching orders from God, right? You want, to, you want it clear? You want to know exactly what you're going to do tomorrow at work? You don't want your boss to say, what do you feel like doing today? Well, maybe you do. Like, I don't know. You want to have a cup of coffee all day? That sounds good to me. You want to get in the hot tub? That's cool too. Uh, but we get to join them in writing this story. We get to imagine, if only for a moment, what might it look like for us to write the story of God in our own lives? How would you end this story if you didn't have the rest of Mark's gospel? If really your encounter with Jesus left you terrified and the news of his resurrection left you bewildered and stunned and I don't know if I even believe that. I don't know what to do about that. I've never encountered resurrection in my entire life. I mean, have any of you? How would you write the story if you are being invited to learn to live with resurrection because it happened? Maybe it's in the work of racial justice and reconciliation. That's hard work. There aren't easy answers. I can't prescribe to you how it's done. It's usually done through a lot of failure. I'll tell you that much. A lot of mess-ups and starting again and starting over again. Could be in the healing of relationships that are broken. A lot of us have really broken relationships as a result of the last couple of years and then prob- probably before that. It could be in schools. My wife's a teacher. A lot of you have kids. Thanks, kids, for being here and sitting so quietly. Um, you, where you're you know, a parent or, or, a par- or you're in a parent club or, and you see deteriorating mental health in our schools amongst kids as a result of this pandemic and you get disturbed because these little ones that are sitting next to all of you are the lifeline of our community. We don't, we don't, we aren't a church without them. If you've been here on a regular Sunday and we dismiss the kids, I got like 10 of you left to preach to. Thank you all for being here. There, you guys are the lifeline of our community, each and every one of you. It could be in churches where you've experienced hurt. Um, or disappointment. You know, I know some of you are back here. <laughs> it's been a while. Or you have other churches you're part of and you feel disappointed with how the church responded or didn't during COVID. Church hurts a thing. And yet you're still worshiping. <laughs> and some of you are serving in the same churches. What's that about? Does the reconciliation, I mean, does the resurrection have anything to say about that? Uh, it could be in your neighborhood where you live, your family that you're going to have Easter brunch with that you didn't choose, this society that can feel maddening, a world that just feels vast and broken. I mean, how might we write the story of resurrection in our lives is the question on the table for us today. It's not about the candy. I love candy, guys, and I'm glad you guys are going to all get some, but it's in order to celebrate the gift of our participation in transformation. That's why you came to, I asked you at the beginning, why'd you come today? I don't know, but maybe that's why we're here, is to, to celebrate the gift of our participation in the story of God. So as we conclude today, I'll invite our worship team back up. Over here uh, next to the cross, you'll see there's a little table there. That's our communion table. There's a couple of journals on there, notebooks, and these have been part of our gatherings for like the past eight years that we've been at church. 
and we use them off and on, more off than on lately. <laughs> we used them on Good Friday, and not all of you got to be here, but it was one of our stations, and we were centering around for Good Friday. Silas kind of mentioned this around the marginal stories in the Good Friday narrative. So stories that you may not have considered before, like Simon of Cyrene and uh, Pilate's wife. And uh, this one over here was the two thieves whom, between whom Jesus is hung. Well, now we flip the page to Easter. You know, Good Friday is in the rear view, and we still hold it in balance with the two, but now it's Easter, and he's risen. He's risen indeed. And so the pages are blank, or sort of blank. And, and it's symbolic. I wanted to make it symbolic of this text from Mark for us. We get to join these women now who go to the tomb, Mary, Mary, and Salome, to then write the story of resurrection in our lives. And so they're bearing a question as they leave, how will we participate in the story of God? How are we going to share this story? He didn't tell us how to do it. He told us a few things, but not all of it. What are we going to say? Are they going to believe us? Where are we going to go now? And what about you? What are you going to write? How are you going to write this story? Think for a moment where you might, how you might, and then this is an individual question and a collective question for us, how you might take the next step in your participation in Christ's resurrection, in joining the story of God through your life. You might not have clarity on that question. You didn't come to church thinking about it. You weren't sure what this is going to be about. So you're kind of, I need time. And that's okay. If we just know that God is for us and with us, that'd be enough. But how might you join God in that story of writing resurrection? How might you live with it? Let's just ponder that for a moment. Where are you being invited? Not by me, not by Bethany Community Church, but by the Spirit of the living God who lived, died, and rose from the grave. He's inviting you into his story. Um, and so these guys are going to lead us in a final song. But before we do, I'm just going to give you about a half a minute of silence to ponder the question. And then if you feel led to come forward and just add something to the page, and there's a couple prompts on those pages you'll see, and they'll be on the screen here for the next 30 seconds. Um, the prompts are, what were they again? <laughs> I desire to participate in resurrection through. How might you desire to participate in resurrection? Or I desire to join Christ in living with resurrection by. Those are s slightly nuanced ways of asking the same question, which is how might we participate in the story that God's writing in our lives? Our stories matter, guys. Each and every one of your stories has value. I hope you know that. Both the peaks and the valleys. The high moments of baptism and the low moments of depression. Each and every one of your stories has value. If you've been walking with the Lord for 50 years, or you're just beginning now again for the fifth time, <laughs> it has value. And we get to live out that value today as we walk with Christ who's risen from the dead. So let's take a few moments just to be quiet in God's presence and then we'll respond together.
Hear these words from Hebrews chapter 4. We do not have a priest, a high God, who's out of touch with our reality. He has been through weakness and testing. He's experienced it all, all but the sin. So now let's walk right up to him and let's receive what he's ready to give us. Let's receive the mercy. Let's accept his help. It's a beautiful way of articulating what we have in Jesus risen from the dead. Just open hands to help us in our time of need. Let's pray. God, we thank you for Easter morning, for the simplicity of it, for the beauty of it, and for the complexity of it. Thank you that we get to walk into new life with you, Jesus. We get to follow you into that new life with our scars, with our wounds, with our hopes. Move in us, Lord, we pray. Move in our families, move in our city. God, we ask you, by your mercy, move in this world right now. We ask for your mercy. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.